Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. And thanks for joining us this week. Normal graduation day for the U.S. military's newest class of uniformed doctors and nurses is still about six weeks away. But because of the coronavirus crisis, the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences is conferring medical degrees early so those new clinicians can get to work right away. 150 MDs and 33 advanced practice nurses got their degrees this week. Another 26 nurse anesthesia students will follow behind them next month. They still have a few certification requirements to meet. We're going to start this week's show by talking to Dr. Art Kellerman. He's the dean of the Bear School of Medicine at USU. Later on in the program, a look at how the federal over Oversight community is going to be involved in the more than $2 trillion pandemic relief bill Congress just passed. We'll also talk about exactly what authorities federal agencies have under the president's recent invocation of the Defense Production Act. First, though, let's get into our conversation on the military medical community and how the accelerated graduation process will work with Dr. Art Kellerman. The good news is that in general, at this point in the academic year, for most medical schools, including ours, Students are finishing up final electives that are nice to have, but not essential to have to fully complete an individual for a medical to get their medical degree. And in the case of USU medical students, uh, our students are unique in American medical education in that they're not only learning to be doctors, but to be high-performing military medical officers and leaders. They are all active duty service members. And so as we saw the coming storm of COVID. And clearly, there have been communities in the United States already where a week makes a profound difference in what's happening in the community. We thought it was important to lean forward with this class and to have them ready in the event that they need to engage to support the mission even a few weeks earlier than they would when they enter graduate education to be able to do that, which is why we have Uh, moved up their official conferral of degrees by basically about six weeks uh, and in the process have them ready in the event that they need to be put into service sooner rather than later. And so what happens with these folks now? I assume they go directly into a residency program. Is that right? Not necessarily. They would be scheduled to start around uh, to go into orientation for residency around June 1. Uh, That is a whole nother set of mechanisms that take time, and uh, many of these people are going to residencies in hospitals outside the National Capital Region. So it's more likely that if they're called upon, uh, we will be uh, deploying them to support various clinical missions in the National Capital Region. Some of our students are already on location at the hospitals where they'll be doing their residency training in uh, early July they could potentially be available to support the mission there. So I would see this, I think we all see this as an interim. There are tasks that our students are superbly qualified to do where they can make a difference. And this will create their ability to engage and support the mission if they're needed over the next six to eight weeks. Was part of the decision-making process here just that it's it's somewhat difficult to run any kind of university in the middle of a pandemic, or, or was it really just the perceived need to respond to the demand signal that you're seeing out there? It's really the, it's really to be prepared to respond to the demand signal. Um, we you know the, we we train our students from day one 
in a manner that is very different than a lot of American medical schools. While our students are educated the same rigorous standard of science and clinical skills, they're also trained to be operational military officers, to work in austere or shifting environments, to make decisions based on the best available evidence, not every single fact in front of them. And so they're already adapt to an environment where they may have to do something very different than they thought they were doing that morning. That's part of the preparation of a military medical officer. So leaning forward is in their DNA, and it's consistent with the philosophy of the school. We have already pivoted the School of Medicine, in fact, the entire university, to maintain high-quality instruction the best we can while respecting CDC guidance on social distancing. We stopped doing large classes more than two weeks ago. Uh, we have really shifted far faster than we ever have in the history of the medical school and are sustaining the education of our students uh, at a very high level. But we do have to make some compromises. But getting these students out the door, we, 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 we were grateful that they were at a point in their fourth year where we could appropriately, in compliance with our accrediting body, confer their degree with all of the full status of an MD. We will have to adapt going forward to ensure that next year's class and the class behind that can, uh, Lord willing, also graduate on time. And if there's any way to do it, we'll find it at America's Medical School. Yeah, yeah I was just going to ask that next question. Are you beginning to think through how, how, you, how you start to educate that next class, ad- adopting more distance learning methodologies where you can, et cetera, et cetera? Yes, we, we, we're, we're well into that at this point. Um, for example, one of our classes was entering a, a very uh, challenging module on neuroscience. That shifted to virtually uh, what we call a flipped classroom instruction last year. That was simple. They just slid right into that approach. Other courses and electives and things, we've moved to online much faster. Fortunately, we've got some of the best educators in the country that are helping the rest of the faculty acquire skills that they didn't think they would need to, uh, to, to adapt for months or years and they did it in a matter of days. But there are other parts of medical education that are frankly going to be challenging for us or anybody. How do you do, uh, how do, you do a clinical clerkship uh, in medicine or pediatrics or surgery when the entire hospital is focused for the moment on COVID? The answer is you really can't. And so at the moment, virtually every medical student in America is not in a teaching hospital doing what they would normally do in surgery or medicine or OBGYN. We hope to be one of the first schools back in the ability to do that as we work through this pandemic. That hadn't happened yet. How do you train students in procedural skills that would typically require students working together in very close proximity to each other? That can't be done either under the current guidance. So we have to find other ways to impart or educate them in those skills. So we're, we're to some degree, we're inventing this as it goes along. We're also freely sharing our knowledge and skills with our other medical schools, uh, and we'll get through this together. Yeah, I think just about everybody's kind of making things up as we go here and learning. Uh, you were mentioning earlier that, that you know, a, a USU medical student is, is kind of trained to be more adaptable than maybe your average physician would be. But is there anything about the curriculum itself in, in military medicine that, that makes these new doctors and nurses particularly well-suited to respond to a, a, a pandemic like this? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, our students, like I said, they take the same courses, the same material. They have to pass the same test that every civilian med school uh, gives. But they also get about 700 hours of additional instruction in tropical medicine, operational medicine, tactical combat casualty care, portable ultrasound, telehealth, other skills that are vital on the battlefield and vital when you're practicing in remote or austere settings or when you are uh, put in a situation where you don't have all the facts or all the information. We teach them leadership skills and problem-solving skills that because we know there will be situations where they may be the only clinician on a ship or they may be out in a very remote uh, support of an air base and they have to be able to do a lot more than a typical American doctor would do. So when you have people with that psychological makeup who have gone through field exercises, uh, you know, for multiple days in a row at a National Guard base or have done prolonged field care with some of the top special operations docs in the world and tell them, we're going to need you to get ready in the next four days to potentially start assessing COVID patients or suspected COVID patients coming in to Walter Reed, they'll do it. They'll rise to the occasion. They've done it before. They know how. They can be very high contributing members of the team. And, for, and, and for it, to speak exactly to that point, um, today, literally, we are rolling out a new curriculum that will allow our, starting with our fourth-year students, our about-to-graduate MDs, to really tune them up on use of personal protective equipment the biology of the disease, how to talk to patients and family members who are under stress or, or dealing with high levels of fear, and other techniques that will help them to be more effective team members in the event that they have to roll out and support Walter Reed, Fort Belvoir, Andrews Air Force Base, or other assets in the National Capital Region. Uh, and th the next thing we'll do is we'll share that curriculum with the American Association of Medical Colleges because elements of it may be very useful to other schools in the United States as well. That's part of our mission. Dr. Art Kellerman is the dean of the Hebert School of Medicine at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. We'll talk more about USU graduates and some newly released clinical guidelines for COVID-19 for the military medical community after a short break. This is On DoD on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu. Back on Federal News Network, this is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu, talking during this part of the show with Dr. Art Kellerman, the dean of the Hebert School of Medicine at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. As we've been discussing, USU has just graduated its latest class of doctors and nurses about six weeks early so they can start helping their fellow healthcare workers with the COVID-19 crisis. Just one more question on, on the graduation issue here. It, it looks to me like this graduating class is about an average size for USU. And I'm just curious if that's your kind of expected steady state going forward. The reason I'm asking is that the, the department has kind of indicated that it plans to reduce its total number of uniformed billets and maybe move toward more civilian doctors out there in, 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 the, in the medical corps. Well, I, I, you know, first of all, the military is always going to need resilient, effective, career committed 
military medical leaders. Mm -hmm. And there was a recent, uh, very comprehensive study done independently by the Institute for Defense Analysis that looked at the value proposition of the Uniformed Services University and the School of Medicine here versus scholarships to civilian schools to train military officers. Those two programs have existed since the end of the Vietnam War. They complement each other. But what they showed in this analysis was over a career span, the value of a USU graduate, the number of years they serve, the skills and capabilities they have, the number of days that they deploy, they're actually a better value, a better bang for the buck than scholarship students. Now, in a, in a military hospital, if you can find a civilian contractor who is willing to work in a very remote location or next to a major training base, particularly in a specialty that earns four times what a military doctor earns, all I can say is good luck with that. Mm. So I think that this is an issue that the DOD uh, will be working through over the next several years to get to the optimal mix. But I can tell you, I'm not a career military guy. I came to this university six and a half years ago from one of the top private medical schools in America. And the doctors that we have here on faculty and the medical students we train are pound for pound better than anybody I've worked with in my career. And I would not uh, personally think that, that, that our interests will be well served over time if there's a major shift to quote unquote privatize the military health system. I don't know too many people who can do what these folks do in the US. I know no one in civilian medicine who can go downrange into a hostile environment and deliver the quality of care that our graduates do. That's really interesting. So it sounds like, based on what you're saying, that the, the folks that graduate from USU tend to hang around in the military for longer than their service commitments, which I think is seven years? Absolutely. It's seven-year minimum commitment after residency. Seventy percent of our students end up serving 20 years or longer. Uh, these are folks who come here. If they didn't come here with a career commitment, they leave with a career commitment because they believe in the mission. They believe in each other. And they're they're just so good at what they do, and uh, and so it's it isn't it it's not for them a way to get a you know avoid a lot of debt, and that's a perfectly reasonable uh, reason to do four years of national service in a military scholarship program. But the students who come here really it is a leadership academy, and they know that coming in, and that's why they end up producing and having the kind of impact they have on military health, the force in our country. All right, Dr. Kellen, I wanted to ask you one more question about another issue before you go, and and that's on the topic of clinical practice guidelines for COVID-19 specifically. USU, I understand, has just issued a new set of DOD-specific guidelines for dealing with clinical encounters uh, for COVID-19. Talk me through a little bit about why DOD needs, or or it's desirable anyway, to have its own uh, guidelines. Well, what I would say first is USU played a significant role in working with the Army, Navy, and Air Force Medical Corps to develop these guidelines. This was a team effort. It's, uh, this is a joint university, and the effort was joint and involved experts across the military health system. But having uniform, best evidence clinical guidelines uh, can trace its lineage back to prior military conflicts and really made a spectacular impact on the treatment of combat casualties during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, Over a little more than a decade, the military completely transformed every aspect of combat casualty care from the point of injury 
to rehabilitation and reintegration of, uh, of wounded warriors into their units or back into the community. And they cut the death rate to the lowest level in the history of warfare. That same mental discipline of what's the best evidence, share it with our colleagues, look at the data coming in, refine, improve, further improve survival. That's the basic process that has now been set in place with these new COVID guidelines. They reflect the best science that the military health system can identify from the civilian world as well as from the military. They are collated in a way that can be easily understood and adapted by our clinical colleagues around the country and around the world. And very importantly, the guidelines and the guidance will be updated regularly to reflect the latest high-quality science to ensure that the clinicians are on the same page, doing the best possible care to achieve the best possible outcomes. Frankly, I think it's a model um, that is becoming more embraced by uh, the civilian world as well. Uh, and I can think back um, uh, to an editorial that Don Berwick, who founded the Institute for Healthcare Improvement a number of years ago, wrote in a JAMA editorial. He said uh, about the whole concept of a learning health system, which is something our National Academy of Medicine has been promoting in American medicine. And he said the U.S. military was practicing a learning healthcare system before the National Academy of Medicine defined it. And that's really what this, the concept of clinical guidance and guidelines is all about. Yeah, it sounds like there's two goals. I almost called them competing goals, but but you're you're saying they're not. I mean, you're trying to get everybody on the same sheet of music and adapt over time, which probably doesn't come naturally to every clinician out there, I'm guessing, but sounds like it's the right way to do things. Right. Yeah, you know, it's it's often said and it's been empirically shown that in typical medicine, a new discovery takes about 17 years to get from the laboratory to the bedside. In the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the military put more than 25 major innovations in combat casualty care online and integrated into day-to-day practice in a little more than a decade. That's one of the most incredible achievements in the history of American medicine. We're dealing, in the case of COVID, with a new disease that we don't know that much about. Yes, it's related to SARS. Yes, it's related to MERS. But we don't yet know in this country the specific characteristics, the various trajectories of illness. What's the best way to manage a ventilator patient in critical care? We're learning every day and every week techniques, observations, uh, opportunities to make care better than the week before. Uh, So guidelines can evolve. They should evolve. But it's just as important to get that information out to frontline doctors and nurses in every military hospital and every facility across the country and around the world as quickly as possible. This approach that Colonel Chung and more than 80 of the nation's most accomplished military doctors have put together is the vehicle that will allow us to do that. So version 2.0, version 3.0 may have some significant improvements based on new evidence that make them better than version one. But um, in this case, We want to make sure that our clinicians, the folks who are taking care of warriors, their families, and military beneficiaries, always have access to consistent, high-quality, rigorous information that they can put into practice today, tomorrow, and the next day, and it'll always be up to date, and it'll always be the best. That's the goal. 
That is Dr. Art Kellerman, the dean of the Bear School of Medicine at the Uniform Services University of the Health Sciences. Another quick break, and when we come back, we'll dig into some of the oversight mechanisms Congress put in place for the more than $2 trillion coronavirus relief package. That's next on Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbid. Thanks for listening to Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. And as we've all heard many times by now, the coronavirus relief package Congress passed late last month is an unprecedented amount of federal spending. And with more than $2 trillion flowing out of the Treasury to fight the disease and stabilize the economy, there will be a lot of opportunities for waste, fraud, and abuse. But Congress did build some strong oversight mechanisms into the bill, drawing on lessons from the 2009 Recovery Act. We're going to turn next to Liz Hempowitz. She's the Director of Public Policy at the Project on Government Oversight. She talked with Federal News Network's Scott The committee is situated at the Council for Inspectors General on Integrity and Efficiency, SIGI. SIGI is a coordinating body among existing IGs. Um, So they run oversight.gov. They organize inspectors general. So it's a committee created underneath SIGI, and it's the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee. And it'll be made up initially of the nine inspectors general at different agencies involved in the coronavirus response. So the Department of Defense, HHS, Health and Human Services, the Small Business Administration. And then there's also the option for um, them to add additional inspectors general down the road that are involved in implementing uh, this funding and this response. The special inspector general created at the Treasury is not a part of this committee, but it is a part of SIGI. And so there will be some level of coordination between the two. But in the legislative text, it's hard to see exactly what that level what that level of coordination is going to be from the beginning uh so the committee sits at siggy um and it is going to be led by one of the inspectors general that is a part of the committee um but it's also going to have an executive director and a deputy director and because the inspector general that's leading this committee was not required to kind of leave their post um unlike the unlike the rap board under the recovery act where earl devaney left his position as inspector general of interior to go lead the board um, so because the IG that leads it is going to still have their their day job, um, it's going to have uh, an executive director and deputy director kind of leading the day-to-day operations of the committee. And that's really important because the committee is not just going to serve a coordinating role among IGs at the different agencies that are going to be doing their own oversight over what their agencies are doing with with the money al- appropriated to them under this under this legislation. Um, but, but they'll be doing their own investigations as well, like the RAP board did. So they're going to look at the information that they're required to receive from they're required to collect from recipients of these funds whether it's through loans or grants um, contracts and and so they're and then they're going to publicly host that information as well just like the rap board did and so it allow uh, the public and groups like ours also to conduct kind of almost real-time oversight of the spending of this money because that reporting is done on a quarterly basis. And so we're going to, from the beginning, um, when this commission, when this committee is set up, we're going to start getting that information much quicker than the public is going to get information under the other kind of oversight mechanisms under this bill. So there's going to be a public-facing data collection of all this data of, of things coming out. From there, Inspectors General will look at that 
as well as the public can look at it and organizations like POGO oversight organizations could also do that, correct? Yeah. Then uh, the commission will have, the committee, I'm sorry, will have access to that data before it goes online. So hopefully, so right. their oversight should begin from, from the second they receive that information. Um, and, and I will highlight that the, like I said, that this is kind of based loosely on the RAP board model. Um, while the website that they, um, that they maintain no longer operates, we have a version of it that we host with kind of the data that was um, collected by it and and so we still host that on our website it's um fedspending.org and and so you could go there and see kind of like what that looked like then and it should give you a good picture of what it can look like now what sort of enforcement mechanisms does does this committee have so the committee itself has testimonial subpoena power um and it will be able to kind of let congress know if they're having any trouble um receiving information from um from recipients um or the agencies because it also uh is required to receive information from the agencies involved in how they're going to be spending um how they're spending that money so again they've got you know two different windows in on on how money is going out the door and how it's being received by recipients and what it's being put to use to. And then, of course, the the inspectors general that are involved um, at their agencies that are a part of this committee will also have all the enforcement mechanisms that they have um, as IGs to to compel um, cooperation. Um, but they're really, I think, the testimonial subpoena power is going to be really key here because um, IGs tend to, to deal with agencies when it comes to information, and this will be collecting information from, um, from the public. So this is codified into law now. It's just, at this point just words on a piece of paper. Where do we go from here and, and how soon are we going to be seeing things start moving? Yeah, well, keep an eye on Siggy because things are already moving. Um, uh, yesterday, uh, Michael Horowitz, who is the inspector general at the Department of Justice, um, is also the chairman of Siggy, where this committee is. Um, and and as the chairman of Siggy, he was tasked with um, appointing the IG that's going to lead that's going to lead this committee, as well as um, appointing the executive director and the deputy director. And so um, I take it as a very good sign that um, that we saw a an appointment so quickly. Um, this was the the appointment was made on March 30th, which was the first working day after this legislation was signed into law. Um, so that's really great. And I believe he has 30 days to make an appointment to the executive director position. But um, but yeah, this committee really of all the different oversight mechanisms in the bill is um, is the best situation to kind of start doing um, conducting oversight as quickly as possible um, as funds start going out the door. And did we see a lot of fraud, waste, abuse under TARP? I mean, was there, you know, is there any, you know, marker? I mean, obviously it was a landmark bill, right? So there's there's no exact watermark as to where that should be. But, you know, how much did we see from it? Yeah, I mean, I think um, there was a lot less fraud and waste than people expected to see. So Mm -hmm. um, I believe I saw some estimates of like three to four percent of this money um, was expected to be lost to fraud or waste. And I believe uh, and I may miss a zero or add or add an extra zero. But it um, at the end, it was something like point zero 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 one percent was wow. um, was lost to fraud yeah so so those are pretty good odds and and again you know that was also a kind of emergency spending mechanism that like money is going out the door very quickly and so it's really important to have um, multiple steps along the way that you are are building oversight into the system 
So seeing that previous result, right? You know, what kind of faith do you have at this point in in what you're seeing in the um, this new stimulus bill? Yeah, well, you know, the language, the legislative language in terms of these oversight provisions are, are pretty good. Um, now, the problem there is that, you know, the implementation is really going to be key. Mm-hmm. And so it's really, so I don't necessarily have an answer right now, but I think the more, the more the public pays attention and the more Congress pays attention to how this is implemented, the better it'll be. I think added transparency is necessary. This committee exists with so much transparency built into the system and that'll allow us to, to check along the way to see if it's working. So yeah, it's, it's hard to say. The text is good. They've got the tools. Um, it'll just take kind of strong leadership and and a real understanding across the board and from the top down in government that oversight over the spending is is critical and and I say that because um, we need to make sure it's getting where it's go- where it needs to go um, and so so yeah as long as that commitment is there the tools are there and and hopefully the public pressure um, will be there as well and are you seeing people at least at this point that seem to be bulldogs for that sort of cause? People oh yeah, are, I, well yeah. I will say, you know, the the provision that we've been talking about this committee created at SIGI, um it was a bipartisan initiative between um uh ranking member Gary Peters and chairman Ron Johnson of the Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee in the Senate. So, um yes, they, you know, they were champions for this provision. I know um Elizabeth Warren was in Senator Elizabeth Warren was involved uh in some of the negotiations for um for some of the other oversight provisions in this bill. So, so there's definitely congressional champions champions. Um, I think it, again, it's implementation that's going to be really key. And so that championing can't end once the legislation is signed into law. And I'm not suggesting that those members are, you know, that's that's what they'll do. But right. um, but I do think it's really critical to um, conduct the follow up and, and, and oversight over the overseers to make sure they're doing their jobs. Um, that's going to be so critical. That's Liz Hempowitz, the Director of Public Policy at the Project on Government Oversight, talking with Federal News Network's Scott Massioni about some of the oversight mechanisms in the CARES Act. One more break, and when we come back, we'll talk about yet another coronavirus-related topic affecting the federal government, how the Defense Production Act might come into play. This is On DOD on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbio. Back on Federal News Network, this is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. Late last month, President Trump invoked the Defense Production Act to help increase the supply of ventilators and other medical items. But the 1950 law contains a wide range of different authorities, many of which might come into play as the health emergency continues to unfold. To dig into what's possible under the DPA, I talked with Dr. Jerry McGinn. He's the executive director at the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. He's also a former senior official in DOD's Office of Manufacturing and Industrial-Based Policy, where he oversaw DOD's use of the DPA. There's three main titles of um, Defense Production Act, uh, and, uh, and several of those are used every day. Under Title I of the Defense Production Act, or DPA, he can delegate the authority to re- essentially prioritize contracts, prioritize the distribution of goods and services to meet government needs. So, And that's done through the Defense Prioritization and Allocation System, which is run by the Department of Commerce. And several agencies, Department of Defense, Department of Homeland Security, and others, had that authority directly delegated, further delegated to them so they could essentially do that contract rating themselves. HHS did not have that. 
prior to the president's executive order. So essentially what the executive order did was give HHS that authority so they can prioritize contracts in this really uh, crazy time that we're in instead of having sort of a middleman with the Department of Commerce. As a practical matter, how would contracting under that new Title I authority actually work? I mean, what, what would HHS most likely be procuring here, and, and how would the, you know, the actual bid and solicitation process actually work? Yeah, so it, it doesn't impact that so much as it does. Uh, um, each contract with the government has a rating. That rating gives their priority. So what this allows HHS to do is to say, listen, this contract is the most important to us, so therefore we're moving it up at the top of the stack. And we want you to accelerate production, and we're going to have to you know, put other things on a lower priority. So in, in this case, like masks or ventilators or things they want to procure, commercial kind of um, um, contracts would be kind of deprioritized, and th- these contracts would be accelerated and moved in, up in the priority order. So that's what it does. So if, the, if HHS wants to then contract with dramatically increased production in, in uh, existing facilities, it would do that through a, through a solicitation, and then the, the authority, Title One, Title DPA authority would allow them to prioritize those and have them go to the front of the queue. So it sounds like there's actually two kinds of prioritization going on there. One is company A, of all the contracts that we have with you, these are the most important to us. And also company A, of all of your customers buying this supply, we need to be at the front of the line. Yes. Yeah. It it allows the government to say, you know, hey, you know, for this kind of national requirement, um, we go to the front line. How novel is this to be used for something other than kind of direct defense needs? Are you aware of any instances where it's been used in, in health emergencies like this? I'm not aware of that. No, it's been it's used very regularly in defense world and in other places. I mean, like in, two prominent examples are during the Iraq War, the MRAPs, if you're familiar with those, the um, mine-resistant vehicles that were procured in the kind of the late 2000s. They used DX ratings, changing of DPAS to accelerate the production of those so they get into the field faster. They've done it with uh, armored um, vests, you know, the, things like that. So they do it pretty regularly. I, I'm not familiar with um, it being done for a medical situation, but it, it it may have been. And so with that lack of history, this question's probably a little hard to answer, but, but conceivably, <clears throat> how much could you see this helping in terms of supplying the government's needs for these kinds of items? I think it, what it's going to do is it's going to essentially – this is not going to be controversial in terms of industry is going to do all they can to produce, right? And this just reduces the contractual friction to be able to say, you know, this is what we're doing now. We're, you know, it just allows them to accelerate production and allow the private sector to do what it can do to help. So I, I think it's beneficial, um, but a lot of this is going to happen organically as, you know, factories max out production and do all they can to do to do more. But this will allow them to potentially Again, accelerate orders, and it's just going to be, I think, mutually reinforcing to efforts that are already going on. Yeah, hopefully you're right, and companies will already be wanting to do everything they can. But but I, yeah. I also wonder if there's new compliance risk here for some companies, because as, as has been talked about a lot in recent years, there are just some companies that do not want to do business with the government because they don't want to deal with the bureaucracy. If they're being, in, you know, hypothetically in some cases, being required to contract with the government, do they then need to hire some experts in the FAR and get government-certified cost accounting systems and all that stuff that they don't want to do today? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Um, I, I think the answer to that is the authority kind of allows 
a lot of waivers on those kind of situations and allows um, gives the government the ability to, you know, essentially um, the government is asking for a higher prioritization or demanding it, but th- in return the, they're going to indemnify the companies or something. I'm not sure the exact particulars of that, but this is not a like you do it our way, comply, and so on. It, it is. I would expect that, that that those kind of issues could could be worked out. Gotcha. And then, as far as the other, I think more commonly used title of the Defense Production Act, what what should agencies be thinking through here as far as how those might be useful to to make their way through this yeah. emergency? That's a great question. So the the more commonly used one is Title Three, which essentially uh, authorizes the president to determine X Y Z capability is critical to national defense. Um, it's not going to be done in the U.S. without government investment. So the president determines that through a presidential determination, and then you can do a, a Defense Production Act uh, project. And these, um, these are done regularly, mostly by the Department of Defense, um, but not exclusively for things like, you know, there's a rare earth magnet production uh, RFP that was on the street earlier this, this year. And now that competition. So they're 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 doing it in areas such as small UAVs, areas in the industrial base where the either the capability has left the United States, but there's a need to rebuild it. So that's what's happening. It's been happening in the last several years. This authority's been around for a long time, but it's really kind of accelerated in, in recent years. And a lot of it, frankly, to address areas where the United States was in sole source positions. Uh, um, with respect to China, so in this uh, for this situation, it would be things like you know creating incentives to modify existing plants to increase production capabilities. It would be um, those kind of things like you know I've heard people talk about you know what about in World War II we used automobile plants and made those into making tanks, you know, so doing, you know, modifying existing manufacturing facilities, that's where a Title III grant or a loan or a purchase commitment could come in. The challenge is those have generally taken months to develop and traditionally. So I view this as sort of a medium, not an immediate kind of fix, but something that could, in conjunction with the increased prioritization and surging of existing industrial base, this allows you to build more capacity. And it, what it also does is in areas like there's been discussions and how the, um, some of the pharmaceutical industry, some of the supply chain is, again, sole source in China. So you could use the Defense Production Act to help restart those, uh, rebuild those industrial capacities in the U.S. Yeah, and along the lines of you know sole source issues, this this actually came up I think in last year's maybe it was the year before DOD's report on on the health of the def- defense industrial base and and yeah, yeah, Title Three very involved with that yeah, yeah. and Title Three came up there too right as as a way to make sure that those sole sources when they were domestic suppliers yeah. didn't go out of business so do, do we start to worry about more of that kind of threat here as the economy overall slows down. Well, that, that report is actually like looking for industrial-based weaknesses and, and, and identifying sole sources. And, and the, the critical place where deep Title III came in is that a number of areas were identified as sole source situations where we were reliant on companies or uh, in China. And th- that's where you've seen the uptick in DPA projects. So those kind of sole source situations are challenging. So, you know, specialty chemicals, things that are, you know, critical for defense items. So you're trying to foster an, a non-existent domestic industry, basically, rather than save yeah, one that's there already. Yeah, or an industry that went, yeah, an industry that went away, you know, because because mm-hmm. you know commercial reasons, you know, companies outsource. This is not a criticism, but, you know, but the commercial drive for you know for outsourcing or lower costs led to that 
production capability being uh, moved offshore. Like rare earths were, you know, mined and separated in the U.S. until the, I think the mid '80s, but then it just migrated offshore because dirty, you know, things. And so um, China and Chinese companies and Chinese industrial policy made a strategic play to become the principal provider for rare earths, and so they cornered the market essentially and drove the U.S. out. And that's that's only a problem when it is a problem, right? So right. that's what Title Three is for, when there's not a, a commercial reason that this industry can stay viable in the United States, but you know where the government investment would help restart that capability or maintain that capability. But you know this had been become a government a continuing government entitlement. This is a way to help restart or jumpstart a capability in the U.S. and make it more commercially viable. So it requires. U.S. government investment as well as cost share by the companies. Last thing I'll ask you, I guess, I mean, l- l- let's broaden this out a little bit beyond the Defense Production Act. I- assume you're still yep. sitting in your old office in the uh, manufacturing and industrial-based policy in OSD. What, if anything, is worrying you right now about the impacts of the whole coronavirus pandemic on the, the government supply base? Yeah, I mean, I you know, I from my time there, I think my, my biggest risk is that this really unfortunately magnifies the risk of being in sole source situations in in countries uh relying on sole source situations in in economies that have lack of transparency and a lack of freedom and so our business practices in china has kind of led to the situation where we're sort of exposed um and it doesn't mean we have to build everything in the united states um it's got to be by america by america all the time but it means that you, you know companies have to be much more um, intentional in terms of you know where capacity is is being developed. Having you know subsidiaries in the in the UK or Australia or Japan, whatever, that's very different from you know when you're relying on critical parts of your supply chain from China. That's Dr. Jerry McGinn, the executive director at the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. He talked with me to talk about the various ways the Defense Production Act might come into play during the coronavirus epidemic. Earlier in the program, Liz Hempowitz from the Project and Government Oversight talked with us about the oversight mechanisms in the just-passed CARES Act. And Dr. Art Kellerman from the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences joined us to talk about USU's decision to speed up the graduation for this year's class of medical students. If you missed any of those conversations, this week's show will be online at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD and in our podcast feed. Subscribe on Podcast One or Apple Podcasts. That's it for this week's edition of On DOD. Thanks as always for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbu. So long. You've been listening to On DOD on Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.